Hello, hello. This is Jordan GCZ or GCZ, and you're listening to the Decisive Podcast from Roberto Ingram. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Decisive Podcast series. This is number 77. Yeah. Hopefully, you're doing well. I'm doing fine. I'm happy that uh, we are easing up the times a little bit. We were able to get out to the clubs. It was a great protest. People flooding the, the streets to protest against keeping us down too long while everything else is open, making money. People want to get out and dance, and the artists want to play. They want to make music. They want to entertain you. They want to have a great time. They want to make be happy again. That's exciting. Although we have to be safe and clear that uh, that is uh, where the world we live in now, but it will never, ever stop the power of dance. And uh, yeah, I'm, as I said, I'm not going to talk too long here. I just want to remind you to be, keep coming back to the Decisive Podcast series. And thank you so much for your support. My guest today from Amsterdam is Jordan GCZ. He is one half of the much-loved improvisational duo Juju and Jordash, one-third of Magic Mountain High, and Jordan also flies solo. And when he does, he takes things to a whole nother level. Releasing his most recent output on Rush Hour, CZZ production accolades also include outings on Lush Life, Crotacosm, CZZ and Willie Burns contributes to Future Times, as well as collaborations with longtime friend Move D, most notable as Mufang and Samansky, and an upcoming album with techno legend Terrence Dixon. Alongside this, his very own off-minor recording imprint has earned somewhat of a cult following specializing in Left of Center. And the improvisational music that you're hearing in the background is provided by Jordan himself, along with his collaborations, all selected and compiled by myself. With that said, let's get on with the interview. Jordan and I have much to discuss, much more information to provide for you. This is a very interesting conversation, so enjoy. Okay, great. So now we're in, we're in the pocket here. How are you feeling today? Yeah, slowly better, you know. The cough is uh, slowly uh, going away. It's all good. Oh, what, what happened? Uh, this sinus infection this past week. As long as, it ain't, as long as it's not COVID, right? Yeah, I got tested three times. You said what? I got tested three times to make sure. <laughs> Off and off and on. You haven't. You have, I suppose you haven't traveled in a while. I haven't traveled in since you know since everybody hasn't traveled since, since when was it March 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a lot of people have also been traveling. Uh, in some, ca- yeah, okay. No, we I, we I haven't left the city of Amsterdam mm-hmm. since um, yeah since March 2020. And how's it going over there? How they handle it? Bad, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't believe in masks in this country, unfortunately. So even when I go to a doctor or a pharmacy, nobody is wearing masks. And the government, the government's not cracking down on this. Oh no, no. Uh, only public transportation at this point is uh, by law, and they can't explain why, but. <laughs> There's no rational explanation why public transportation, yes, but a doctor, fucking doctor's office and pharmacy, no, but c'est la vie. It's this uh, strange strain of Dutch libertarianism, mm. which I, I mean, I knew it always existed, but I didn't know it was so mainstream here. This uh, idea that everybody takes care of themselves and screw the, yes, you yeah. know, screw everybody else. Screw everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very disappointed in that, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody's like liberal here and on the left more you know, like in, in some ways. But for some reason, when it comes to masks, they have some uh, psychological issue that prevents them from uh, willing willingness to wear one in order to protect other people. I don't I can't explain. I gave up, you, gave up. you know, people people that I'm close to that I really respect intelligent people. It says, and also, I mean, also the government, I mean, lied to the people here and the press here lied to the people. From the beginning, they they didn't want people to think it's aerosol. Right. So it, they just continue the same lie and they just can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. But you've, you've, you've gotten through, okay, this, what is it, a year and a half now? 
Uh, I guess more. Already more, more than that. Um, when you when you saw this coming, when you saw this coming, I know. I guess we met some time back, while back. I guess eight years. Ago. I don't know. Free rotation. I remember. Free rotation, right? So it was more than eight years, maybe. Even I don't know. And then uh, I think uh, we saw each other in Munich once, maybe. Sure, sure did. You um um. um and the guys were traveling quite a bit, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the, up until March, it was pretty busy. I mean, I always come. I always uh, felt like I wasn't busy enough, but now in retrospect, uh, super busy. <laughs> well, well, Jordan, Jordan, what is it? Jordan C? No, Jordan G C Z. What does this stand for? I mean, Jordan is my first name. My middle name is Jeffrey with a G, and my last name is Chemansky with with a CZ. And my first email address was jordangcz at yahoo.com. Awesome. Okay. So I decided that my artist name will be my email address. <laughs> Where are you originally from? Uh, I was born in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. You are Ohioan? Yeah, man. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. No shit. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, I was born in 75 in Ohio, and then my parents moved to Israel in 83, basically, and then I was there for, uh, for how long? For like 20 years? Amazing. And then I moved to Amsterdam, and I've been here like almost 20 years, I guess. <laughs> uh-huh. Israel has no dance culture. No, it does. It does. Definitely start. I mean, since the, I would say, midnight. I mean, it always had clubs, just like everywhere else. But in terms of house and techno, I would say it started trick trickling in. Uh, I mean, the underground stuff, the good stuff started trickling in in the mid to late 90s. Uh, so uh, there was, I mean, there was stuff in the late 90s going on. Like promoters were bringing good DJs. I had friends that were really good DJs and playing the stuff I like, you know, Chicago house, Detroit techno. Uh, so there's, and I mean, Tel Aviv is really a party city. Uh, I mean, it always has been. Oh, really? It's like a bubble in Israel. Oh, wow. Like okay. Every, every, you know, every young person, not every, but. I understand what you mean. Most young people want to move to Tel Aviv you know, after their army service or whatever. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's a little kind of interested in non kind of mainstream stuff and, you know, wants to be more in the center of things moves to Tel Aviv. Now, I don't know, that was that was back in the early 90s. Now it's so expensive that I don't think kids can afford it. I mean, back then I paid $200 a month rent. Now it's like 2000, I would guess. Wow. Yeah. So back in the early 90s, when I first moved there in 93, it was a cheap ass city with great parties, uh, you know, liberal uh, morals uh, relative to Israel, like really a bubble. Uh, great food, blah, blah, blah. You know, since since then it became a high tech city, and every young person I know was priced out. I mean, people my age, like forty six, you know, none of my friends can afford Tel Aviv anymore. I mean, we all lived there when we were twenty. We can't. None. Nobody can afford to live there unless, like, you work in high tech, unless you're wealthy, basically, or you're young and you're willing to live with five roommates. You think the growth? was uh, most likely began because of the young people moving to Tel Aviv and they saw and they brought tourists and other people that wanted to be no I think the big thing the big change was uh, the internet the high tech so starting uh, like around the turn of the the millennia uh, there were a lot of uh, new young startups in Tel Aviv and I think that drove a lot of what's happening now in terms of which was a good thing or or 
I mean, a good thing for those uh, involved in that uh, industry and a good thing, I guess, for the Israeli economy. So for artists and, 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 and talent and culture, that all just kind of diminished as far as... You know, just like everywhere else, once you price out the young people, there's less culture and, you know, same as it's every, every city that, like Amsterdam had the same thing. I mean, when I first came here as a tourist in the 90s, uh, like in, I guess, I don't know, 91, it was a cheap-ass city, super cheap. Uh, I think the prices in Amsterdam, it changed when the euro came in. Suddenly, prices were basically double here. And now, the real estate, you know, the, the rent prices, I mean, young people really have difficulty uh, living in Amsterdam, uh, moving here. With these, with these massive price gaps, what do you see our, where do you see our music and, and the culture? What does this mean for, for uh, musicians? And I think it's good, basically, because I know I started making this music while I was living in Haifa, which is a small town in, in northern Israel, which had no scene whatsoever, zero. And I, I think it, uh, it was an advantage to be an outsider and it gave me kind of a fresh perspective and I wasn't following trends because there was no trends in Haifa. I was just, you know, hearing some records from Chicago and Detroit uh, and kind of not being, you know, there was no parties, there was no house parties in high you know, <laughs> when I was uh, 17, 18, uh, uh, seriously none in Haifa and very few in Tel Aviv. So I think I like the outsider thing, you know, I think it kind of gives, uh, I mean, there's, of course, you know, there's disadvantages to that, but I think ultimately kind of gives the, the culture a little fresh take when people from all over the world and not necessarily just people in Berlin or London are contributing creatively to the scene. And I mean, all the Detroit guys I know, it's not that, you know, all my friends that are artists in Detroit, it's not that they were like scenesters in Detroit or anything. They were sitting in their basements making music, making like futuristic ass music, while all the hipsters in Berlin are kind of regurgitating their ideas and watering it down. So I feel like being an outsider isn't bad and not being part of like some fancy city scene, it's not bad. I mean, it's bad for young people in general that they can't live in cool cities because they can't afford it. But I mean, for the culture, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's that horrible. I mean, because I mean, I can name before <laughs> before the pandemic, uh, I thought I had the good I had a good feeling that the electronic music culture where in general was really flourishing i mean uh, djs and live acts were almost filling stadiums and rock stars almost yeah i think that's crap though i think that's uh, an illusion i don't think that's a good thing for our culture i think that's a bad thing for our culture I think it's a bad thing uh, because I mean, I mean, you're getting, you're getting, you're getting gigs, and you're getting, yeah. I made a living. I made a right. You're getting paid to so you can go home and create new stuff and go back on the road again. This was a. I also agree with you to a certain point because I felt like the pri the guys are getting paid like twenty thousand, fifteen thousand, eight, you know, whatever they were getting paid when. When I believe that somebody like uh, James Brown wasn't getting that money, that <laughs> I mean, some of the creators weren't getting that, getting paid that much for. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, I'm not. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for the culture. It's a good thing for artists to make money, of course, but it means you're you're you know you're dancing with the devil. You know why? Okay, okay explain. What do you mean? You're. I mean, I know from my personal experience. I, you know, as Juju and Jordash or as Magic Mountain High, many, many times we were booked just because we were hip or, you know, because of Juju Jordash's association with uh, big, uh, famous promoters like Dick Montel, or it's not on the basis of the music. So many times we played in front of thousands of people that really enjoyed the show, 
but I really know that none of them bought our album or they don't really take interest and the only reason they're listening to us is because because we're hip you know because resident advisor writes about us because you know it's not really always based on merit and maybe I'm putting my music down this way kind of saying it but I just know it when I look into the crowd it's not based on looks or anything but you know you can you can feed off their energy of what's going on that's no that's, that's part of the job and Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, you know, I don't think it's necessarily good for the music itself because it's very tempting to want to please those people that are paying you a lot of money and uh, giving up uh, what you really uh, believe in. You know, it's hard to be a purist when somebody's paying you a thousand euros. Uh, you know, it's you don't want to disappoint them. And when you see the crowd is a, like a fist pumping kind of Jersey Shore type crowd you know they're gonna hate your shit if you do what you really want to so I think you subconsciously water down what you what you deliver in those situations to accommodate the crowd mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I mean that's I mean we're in the music industry it's a music business you know there's a business side to it and so I mean it's great you know to for artists to make a living and I want all my very talented artist friends and myself to To make a very good living from this however we need to be honest about it and uh, be aware that it also there's a danger that it will water down the culture mm-hmm. you know all of us playing for Red Bull all of us playing for all that crap you know it's not what I really believe in I do it I did it because I need the money and I need to make a living but it is some sort of a sacrifice and to deny it it's kind of bullshit because I see you I know a lot of good DJs that used to play very dope underground music that in the middle of their cool set they're gonna drop some cheesy ass shit just because they want to be booked again mm-hmm. you know it's all about and the culture has become this you know spectacle of everybody standing staring at a DJ and it's like this economy of uh, hands in the air you know you And our music isn't all about these hands in air moments I mean I like that too you know but it has reduced our culture to this hands in the air culture where all the DJs want it seems is to reach the point of that certain vibe that you get in the crowd when they lift their hands in the air mm-hmm. and I don't think that's good for our music I don't think it's good for for the culture if, if there's such a thing you know I you know I think I My favorite tracks are not hands in the air tracks you know I don't I don't think I like any of that crap it's <laughs> funny it's funny you say that because <laughs> you know you're not gonna do hands in the air let's say the biggest hit in the techno world in the last 20 years was Knights of the Jaguar right that is not a hands in the air track and that's the biggest best fucking techno track in 20 years yeah but let me tell you something when that song came out see I'm a dancer so you can't tell me that I'm not putting my hands up you can't tell me that I'm not feeling a vibe that's like just I'm just going like oh this is it hey man come on I got goosebumps right now so I'm I'm, yeah. try, I'm trying to but understand what you mean. kind of trap yeah but they you know you know what I know hair gel dudes aren't gonna fist bump to it you know what I mean fist pump yeah, yeah but I mean You have uh, what I had to learn and to understand was that for instance in America there is such a thing as dance culture there is such a thing some people not necessarily can dance and the one thing they do they know how to do is move side to side and pump and they they don't you know they're not you know so I had to realize that you know this is sort of a feeling of fist pump is also a reaction that they can have you know and uh, I had I went through this conversation with Jay Denham a, a couple of times too uh, and a few other uh, artists that said you know that they don't like DJ standing there that uh, that dance or move around or enjoying themselves they're, they're concentrate on you know on working I love both whatever you whatever whatever works I mean sometimes I'm dancing sometimes I need to focus I mean I have no problem with as long as it's not performative I have no problem with it right I, I, I need both and sometimes uh, yeah so for me 
if we don't have the fist pump, if we don't have the fist pumpers, and what's the ones that are doing this dance? You know the one they go like they going like this. No, I mean as long as they're dancing, I'm happy. But when I say fist pumpers, I mean I don't consider that dancing. When I I'm not referring to people that are dancing and expressing themselves that way. I just mean that I feel like in the last decade it's been reduced to this hands in the air moments that every DJ is trying to achieve. Oh, they go down, they go down to the ground like this, and then they go up like this. Yeah. Is that what you mean? All these, like you know, it's like all you need to get a hands in the air is cut the kick for 16 bars, bring it back in, you get the hands in the air pump up. I mean, and I think that's like reducing the music to cliches, and and I don't think it's dancing what people are doing when they react to that. I think it's just it's like uh, Pavlovian, like dogs when you. When they smell a steak, they salivate. So when you cut out the the kick for 16 bars, you know that they're gonna lift their hands in the air. It's not it's not science. It's not rocket science, and it's not art. It's 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 like manipulation. It's very simple okay. kind of psychological manipulation. And I, I don't know. It's just not what I look for. You know. I mean, that's more like an EDM thing. Also, that kind of. Uh, Snuck, uh, snuck into uh, the underground too. So, um, how that's interesting. How is life treating you now? Um, since the year, year and a half of you, have you had a chance to like reflect on making more music, better music, changing your style? Uh, or you enjoy uh, smoking <laughs> in Amsterdam? <laughs> Nothing new there, though. Smoked more when I was in Israel. <laughs> Have you um, reflected on uh, being better at music, more practice? You're not with uh, Mount Magic Mountain High. You're not with the Juju and Jordash. Yeah, because I mean, listen, Gal Juju, he lives in Tel Aviv. So, I mean, I haven't seen him in two years. We haven't made music together in two years. David, he lives in Germany. I haven't seen him in two years almost, you know? Like a year and a half or how much time it's been. Uh, so I've been dedicating the time uh, for, you know, my solo stuff and, and that's good. And I've been, you know, kind of teaching some improvisation. I have this Patreon thing, so I've been spending time developing that. But mainly I've just been in the studio every single day. And the studio's in my house now, which also I happened right before the pandemic. I moved out of uh, a studio that was outside my house and moved it into my attic. So that means I wake up in the morning have my coffee and turn on the studio so now most importantly i am lucky that my girlfriend uh, she's a freelance writer and editor she had enough work during the pandemic so i didn't have to freak out i mean i did freak out and i did have to start this uh, patreon to make some money but you know that that was a real thing a real important and lucky kind of angle that my partner she you know she really pushed me to spend this time to work on my solo music and not you know struggle to try to make a few bucks if she's making uh, the money right now so it, you know it's a psychological and ego ego adjustment too you know I'm a real ego I have a real problem with my ego and you know not making money for a year and a half kind of feels like not making enough money for a year and a half you know that was a big blow or like, am I really a musician? If I can't even make fucking money for my own music, then maybe I'm just an amateur, you know? So it raised a lot of questions, but I just, uh, you know, also I deal with a lot of mental health issues, uh, anxiety, so that was also a thing with the pandemic. It didn't help, of course. But basically, I'm just in the studio all day making music for my Patreon people, making music for my solo album, uh, making music for my EPs on Rush Hour, I've just been, you know, full on every day, you know. I, for the first time, I have a hard drive full of tracks I don't know what to do with, you know. It's uh, just www.patreon.com slash jordangcz. And I, I also, you know, every month I give uh, exclusive new tracks and I do video live jams for my patrons. But also I have this teaching thing going on there where I teach people uh, through Zoom, uh, just help them out with their uh, production at home using improvisation to kind of loosen them up and, you know, people that are stuck in their production and 
So that's another thing that I really been surprisingly enjoying doing. You know, tell me something. Why is making music so important to you? What are, what were your influences? I mean, how did you get started? Why is making music just something you that you love and you spend so much time doing? Why is it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess it has to do with psychological things, of course. And so, I mean, I have very early, I have a very early memory of being very impressed. Uh, going to, I don't know, I think it was like parents, my parents' friends' house or something, and they had one of those double-decker organs. Uh, it must have been the late '70s or something, and you know, there was all the different sounds like flute, ob. You know, one of those basic things and a little drum machine. And I was just, I don't know, that 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 was a very early memory. I guess I was like five or four, five. And I remember that really thinking that you could do all these different types of sounds from one thing. I really liked that. But more, I think more importantly, it was kind of like my parents moved to Israel, like I said, when I was like eight. I didn't know the language. I had nothing to do with the culture. I knew nothing. I was an American blonde kid suddenly in the Middle East in the early 80s. Uh, I lost all my cultural uh, connections, all my friends. Uh, I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. So all I had was music. So I was obsessed with pop, you know, with the British charts and just in general, anything that they sang in English, I was obsessed with. Mm. Then I, you know, and this was the early 80s. So of course it's like, Pet Shop Boys, uh, later on New Order, uh, I was really into Duran Duran, and Synthesizers always played a big role. Oh yeah. And I was like obsessed with the charts, I was obsessed with pop and I loved it and so I, I really got into like uh, Synthesizers and then uh, I had my Bar Mitzvah, you know, <laughs> when you're 13. <laughs> it's the biggest like birthday it's like the one birthday that like you cash in it's like christmas for christians so for my bar mitzvah i said i'll do it like i didn't want to do it because i didn't i was already like i wasn't uh, religious or anything i didn't believe in it i wasn't in it at all and i didn't want to do it i was a cynical kid even at 13 but my grandparents they basically bribed me they said if you do it we'll buy you a synthesizer so I did it. Uh, I, I had my bar mitzvah. I read the things from the Torah, you know, from the Jewish Bible. You made sure you did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got this cool Yamaha early synthesizer slash workstation that, you know, had uh, a little drum machine in it and synthesizer. And yeah, and then I was just, that's all I did, you know. From, from that point on, I just started recording songs and uh, playing pet shop. Uh, boys songs on it and you didn't go into you didn't go to school for any I, I took some piano lessons when I was five right before my parents left Ohio they signed me up to this uh, Suzuki method piano lessons it's this Japanese method that was really popular in the early 80s late 70s of taking like four-year-olds and training them to be like classical pianists now I, I didn't last long because I refused to to practice and then uh, so I didn't do it but it gave me I think the basics of the feel for a keyboard you know I really I, I liked playing keyboard and I didn't know how to read notes anymore and stuff like that but I don't have classical training but I do did have the basics of how to place your hands on a keyboard and since then my parents had a piano in their house so whenever I could when they were at work I would fuck around on the piano yeah but uh, isn't that practice yeah it is to me yeah but back then no the reason i mean my parents were not pleased that i wasn't willing to practice you know to do this, what i was supposed to so that's why i used to do it when they were at work because uh, they were like wow you can't play this also they didn't i was banging on it you know at that point because i didn't have the back so i was just making noises basically banging on it and learning my own shit around age 10 i became super obsessed with pop music and started buying cassettes obsessively every birthday and like that was my listening to the radio recording songs off the radio you know i i used to make the you know when class dances started i used to always make the tapes you know for the dances so i'm the one i'm that kid you know i used to make 
And then, you know, also because I didn't fit in, I feel like my teachers at, uh, at grade school, they kind of pitied me because I was this weird American kid that didn't speak the language. So they gave me this job that I was in charge of playing music for the 15 minutes between quarter to eight and eight every morning at school for the whole school through the loudspeakers. Oh, holy shit, okay. For every school day. So from age 10 to 12, I had that gig and also set up the microphone for the principal for the op- for the morning, you know, the, the principal would say a few words to the students every morning. So I think that also kind of gave me that DJ bug a bit. Wow, that's that's I haven't heard that I haven't heard that kind of story before. Uh, I and it's so funny that I used to hook up the mic, play, you know, back then I was into already into Run DMC and it was already so that was really weird for Israeli kids. I mean, there was no back in no the first wave of hip hop like in the 80s hip hop that did not really hit Israel hard, the radio, the mainstream radio. But I was really into it, uh, you know, the first Beastie Boys, uh, like uh, Run DMC, Eric B, Akeem, you know, the first wave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I used to play that kind of stuff and I used to test the mic and I used to say in the mic, I would say like one, two, one, two, testing one, two. And then like, I was a shy kid, but all the kids knew me from school. They used to walk up, oh, you're the one, two guy, you're the one, two guy. <laughs> So it gave me some kind of identity. So I think uh, that's when, you know, this whole connection to music came out of basically being a lonely outsider kid. And I found my voice through the pop music, listening to that stuff. And, you know, you felt you felt you felt confident and you felt safe in that realm. Okay. Uh And that was everywhere else. No, I did not. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, when did you start actually DJing? I was making music way before I was DJing. I yeah. So I mean, still to this day, I DJ and you know I'm booked as a DJ uh, many times, but I still consider myself more a producer and a musician. I mean, the DJing is something that I always enjoyed, but and uh, but always around me there were better DJs. I felt. When did you realize that you wanted to have your own studio and and what gear? Uh, 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 which studio gear influenced you to buy, uh, to, to maybe even influence you t- so much to entice you to go out and buy more gear and add to yeah. your creativity? When did this develop, this collection? Yeah, so age 13, my bar mitzvah, I got this first Yamaha uh, workstation synthesizer. It was a PSR something. I don't remember which number, 80 or 60. It was like this workstation Yamaha thing, and then and I and it had a little sequencer on it, you know, for bass, chords, and drums. So already then, I was just starting to record on tape, you know, on a cassette. Uh, on one side, the music. I don't know if you remember, but if you stuck in the headphones just half the way into the mic input into a old tape deck, you could record on one side a microphone and the music would stay on the left, on the other side. So I started making songs that way. So I would have all the playback on the left ear from my workstation and I would sing and make up rap or whatever it was with my headphone uh, on the other side. So I guess already at 13, I was making funny songs, uh, kind of new wavy poppy mm-hmm. and a little hip hop-ish uh, later. Mm-hmm. And then around age 15, I bought a four-track uh, cassette, uh, and then I got deeper. You know, one of those four-track ta- tapes. Which one? Uh, I don't uh, Tascam. I, I don't remember which Tascam, but probably the cheapest one on the market. Yeah. Uh, and then around age 16, I got my first proper synthesizer, which was a DX11. A dear friend of mine just gave it to me. Because he knew I uh, needed it. <laughs> Basically, this real friend and mentor, Udi, uh, who sadly passed away about a decade ago. Uh, so uh, he basically gave me a DX11. And and at the same time, uh, then I was more into, uh, I was making like kind of industrial dance stuff. Because I got, I was, you know, as a later teen, I got angry. Oh, really? You know? You know, when the rage comes out. So I was kind of a punk 
kind of stylistically and musically I was making kind of more industrial stuff like I was into skinny puppy and all this kind of electronic industrial stuff skinny puppy yes and like old ministry uh, like that kind of stuff oh shit Okay. So I liked the, the drum beat, the heavy beats, because I was listening to punk too at the same time, and goth stuff. I was, you know, I had a couple of years that I was just totally gothed out with like Bauhaus, and it all changed around 13. Things went wild basically, but then, you know, kind of steadied on on the industrial stuff towards my when I was 16, 17. And then I discovered techno when I was 18. And then it all, at the same time, I was really into free jazz for, from age 15 on. So I was listening to like Skinny Puppy, but also uh, free jazz. I was into, I was into like weird music, basically. That's, and that's funny that you say that because I remember in late 80s, early 90s, when I, I was DJing at a club called The Mayan downtown. And I had, I had, I started, I was so happy to play hip hop, R&B, so, uh, neo soul and stuff like this. And then at some point you get to this place of you playing the same thing because you know it works in the club and you try to get outside the box. And I was getting, I was in a record pool and, and skinny, when you brought up skinny and all these uh, uh, pet shop boys and you know, it's really a, it's a, it's a really amazing because uh, it was really a struggle to to work that music in and and punk and and the goth stuff. I had moved to California, so goth was uh, Southern California. So goth and and this sound, this industrial sound was was coming my way. And I'm I'm a kind of an open door, open book mm-hmm. when it came to uh, just kind of sucking in information and stuff. Okay, it's not yeah. something that. It wasn't something uh, that I dove into the culture with, you know, getting all dark and black, but just mm-hmm. to have the, just to have uh, um, and um, another. Well, you're a DJ, you know. Yeah. You to... Just to hear what was else was uh, uh, outside of my comfort zone. So that's yeah. amazing. That's an amazing story. And if you could go ahead and finish, I'm sorry. Yeah. Then age 18 on the bus that was riding me to the fucking army because every Israeli has to go to the army. Sitting next to me was this dude who was listening also to his own music on his headphones on a Walkman and he basically introduced me to Juan Atkins uh, Model 500 uh, we became good friends He's, he was a fucking awesome DJ too I mean we we made music together for some years anyway so he introduced me to Detroit Techno and then I just it was it was the perfect storm for me because as I said I was into industrial electronic stuff but I was also into jazz so here is this genre that I wasn't aware of that mixes the two perfectly the hard rough beats of kind of industrial dance music mixed with the sweet bluesy model minor seven chords of Detroit Techno and it was just perfect I found my music then I just became totally into that. And Chicago House at the same time, like, more or less. Who was like a major influence on your sound? Juan Atkins. Juan Atkins. Larry Hurd. Larry Hurd, okay. And would you say that with that knowledge and with that influence, do you think you've carved out your own style now? I'm working on it. I never try to imitate uh, either of them. That you know, I, Because I'm so aware of their influence on my taste, uh, I never lean in. Too much. I never lean in too much. I mean, I did at the beginning, of course, you know, back when I started making music, you know, all I wanted is to, you know, impress Larry Heard. But uh, no, I never, I, I always wanted to be different. That's my problem or my advantage or my problem. Uh, it's very important for me to be different and have my own identity. It's probably just because of the way I grew up, you know. Because I would say, some of my influences was also from Juan Atkins and, and uh, uh, Derek May and um, and uh, Larry Hurt. This whole when this whole time it was a big influence on a lot of people. But I guess what I meant by that was, you know, if you're opening up a book or you're listening to Bach, you're learning Bach. I try not to learn anything. Really, that's my approach. I try not to learn. I try not to intellectualize the music too much i try not to uh, analyze i used to when i was 18 i was really analytical but i realized i think 
in my early 20s, I learned in my early 20s that, okay, if you want to be an academic, then you can analyze shit. But if you want to be a musician, you have to let, let loose and not, not try to do anything and just do you and not try. Just not try. That's my approach. You know, jazz, I mentioned all those industrial things and all that, but my biggest influence of all is jazz, for sure. And that's the music I listen to at home till this day from since I was 15. And most of my friends in music were always jazz guys. And I'm a hobbyist jazz guy. Always I enjoy playing piano as a hobby, you know. And my favorite musician is probably Eric Dolphy. So I would say I'd probably, I try to be more influenced by Eric Dolphy than, uh, than Juan Atkins, even though there's no connection to the genre, philosophically. Uh -huh, uh -huh. To do improvisation, you have a vision of where you at, because you knowing key changes, chord progressions, da da da, This you don't. If you don't, it, uh, how does this work? If you're working with, if you're working with somebody, let's say Herbie Hancock. I'm not working with Herbie Hancock, you know. I know you're not, but I'm saying I'm trying to understand your. Yeah, my approach is you put in the hours, you're gonna learn. Now I do know I do know some scales and I do know some chords, but I only learned them after the fact. You know, I I, I was making music before I knew scales and stuff. I only learned how to write notes when. For Juju Jordash, for example, we worked with a sax player and we wanted him to play a certain part. So I had to learn how to write parts for sax players and a trumpet player. So I had to learn notation. So I bought a book and I learned notation. But it only when I had to, you know? And in terms of improvising with other people, even though Juju and I, we do know kind of scales and stuff, basically sometimes it's like, I'm gonna play the white keys and you better follow me. Or, or if it's a more complex scale, of course, then just look at my fingers because I don't know what it's called, but look at this scale, what I'm doing. That's how I work with Gal and David. <clears throat> look at what I'm doing, listen to what I'm doing. If you get a bum note, it's okay because next time you won't get a bum note. Mm -hmm. And that's it, it's not precious. You know, the only thing that's precious is being in the moment. Mistakes are both, mistakes, It's they fleet, they, they're fleeting. I'm gonna compliment you on that, um, uh, being that you're so confident with this type of music making. And uh, what I'm trying to get out of you is what you just said. This, what's important about this process? Because you can't tell somebody that's an analytical person and they, they're very good at it. And then they can go and, and t throw away the book and then improv without, you know. It's not that simple. And that's what I learned this past year teaching people. A lot of analytical people come to me because specifically they have a problem of letting loose. So I take the other extreme. <laughs> if if I if somebody comes to me that doesn't know shit and never put in the hours and just expects to bang on a keyboard and something nice to come out, I say, listen, you need to put in the hours and see what sounds nice together. I'm not saying you have to learn it from a book, but put in the hours and train your ear and learn the chords. You don't need to know what they're called, but learn your fingers, learn the keyboard, learn what sounds good. And that's it, you know? So every person has a different psychology and they need to work on different aspects in order to achieve their, their to reach their potential artistically. For me, I, I, I think as a kid, I was very analytical because I tried to make sense of the world, you know, in an analytical way. But in my early 20s, I learned that I need to let go of that because it doesn't lead to good music. It leads to good talking about. I could be a good music journalist if I'm good at analysis, but it, it hurts my music by thinking about it too much. May I ask about the members of the improvisational duo Juju and DoorDash and Magic Mountain High. What were the what were the differences between those two? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's another person. You know, that's a thing. Because we work so organically, both in Juju DoorDash and Magic Mountain High, as in, you know, we go on stage with nothing and just improvise. It's all up to the people that are part of it, and all up to the moment. I would say, if I would to look back and analyze the difference, is Juju and Jordash, Gal, uh, my partner Juju, he does the drums and sometimes the bass line, and I do the rest, like the melodic, harmonic stuff, the, the, the playing. And with Magic Mountain High, 
David and I divide that uh, role. And sometimes David will take over the drums for a moment and God will play guitar. Because God's a guitar player, basically. Mm -hmm. and that's how I met God. Mm -hmm. We were playing jazz together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are two different uh, improvisational teams. Who, which one of those teams were getting booked the most? Well, Juju and Jordash was the main deal, always. I mean, Juju and Jordash, it's all started out from there in terms of the, like Magic Mountain High was uh, Juju and Jordash. We, we were at a festival in Italy in 2008-ish. We met David for the first time. We became good friends. He invited us to his studio. We went to his studio, uh, recorded a EP. Just, you know, no pressure, just for fun. Then we had a gig, Juju and George. And no, we didn't have a gig. The Camontel dudes, who we just met at the time, Juju and Jordash, they heard from us that we hung out with Move D in his studio and recorded an EP. And they asked, they had some event going on, and they asked if we wanted to play live together. Now, due to the fact that we never played live together with David and never, we don't live in the same city or the same country, we said yes, but it had to be 100% improvised because we didn't, we, ne we couldn't practice or anything. So we just went with it. And that's, I think, the root of all. And then we found out that it's way better than planning anything. Somehow you guys had chemistry somewhere, someplace, somehow doing We still do. We still do. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, so it all starts from the personal connection. Okay. It would not have happened if we didn't just hang out with David, this whole uh, festival, Dance City Festival in Foligno. Shout out to those guys, because there would be no Magic Mountain High without them. If we wouldn't have so much in common as people and enjoy each other's company, none of this would have happened. None of this, because nobody wants to spend time with somebody they don't get along uh -huh. with. Uh -huh. It was never a business thing or anything like that. Are you looking forward to getting back on the road? And what can we expect? Okay, the downtime, you debate Patreon. I finished recording my first album. When is that? When is when should that be released? Uh, I mean, in theory, it's supposed to be the end of the year, but in reality, knowing how the pressing plants now are, I'm guessing March, fingers crossed. It's very difficult to get releases. Um, it's impossible with the vinyl right now. The vinyl. For, uh, um, but why are there so many vinyl requests then? It's, it's amazing how much vinyl... No, it's not underground. It's reissues of Michael Jackson Bad. It's 180 gram presses of Fleetwood Mac records that, are, you know, it's all about nothing to do with us. It's all record store day. It's record store day bullshit. Yeah, where the money is coming from. To pay yeah, it's it. not us. It has nothing to do with our side of the business. And uh, are you proud of this one? Of my solo album. <clears throat> I'm proud that I that I that I'm do that I did something with zero considerations to the marketplace and hundred percent trying to find my a voice of my own that represents where I'm at at the moment musically. You you say when you say the music is for you. Um, is this selfish? No, the music is not for me. The music is for other people to listen to. But I'm not tailoring my music uh, according to fads or other people's tastes. Uh, this is this is uh, I. I had no pressure on me to have any bangers in there. You know, I didn't make this album trying to get gigs. Are there bangers on it? <laughs> There's a couple, uh, uh, I wouldn't say bangers. They're kind of deep bangers, maybe. There's a couple, I would say there's a few uh, DJ friendly-ish tracks on it. That's about it. I mean, it's all over the place. Are you excited about the release with you and Terrence Dixon? Yeah, extremely. Yeah. I'm also excited about the prospect of gigging together. And now also that, something, now yeah. that, now that, that is going to be amazing because I can, I can I can see and feel this connection between you, you two musically. Yeah, we're uh, from the second we met and got into the studio. We don't have to talk. We press record, and the magic happens, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And and we both uh, are excited to try to do to improvise live uh, 
on stages, you know, next year or something. I don't know. You and I spoke before about yeah. this. Um, Terrence, to me, has some kind of a mysterious darkness, but also melodic, fluffy and soft, but still got this... Uh, uh, He's an abstract genius, that guy. Well, he, he, he put his abstractness, abstractiveness is also rhythmic and almost haunting at times. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's a mysterious guy, you know? <laughs> I'm wondering where and where this music is most heard and appreciated. I have like maybe, I believe, six or seven or eight or not, maybe 10 of his releases. And um, I've tried to introduce them on my maybe some DJ mixes or podcasts where it doesn't mean it doesn't relative it relatively is only for the sole purpose of hearing something else that I have in my collection. You guys is sound together. What is the magic that you added to this team of? I don't know. We have our own sound. You know, it's we just went with the flow. Uh, I don't know how to answer that. It is it melodic at all? Is it? Sometimes, sometimes if I felt like it or he felt like it, you know, it, it is, there's, yeah, of course it, there's, there's some melodies, but I don't know. I feel like it's even deeper, like, you know, it's even less club. Maybe, I mean, not, not necessarily. I mean, there's, a, there's some jams on there that could absolutely kill it if the right DJ plays it. But I'm just saying it, it's abstract shit, it's, but it's, I mean, it's maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I can't compare it. Cause also in my mind, Terrence's catalog is pretty varied. So. He has stuff that is a bit more abstract, stuff that is more melodic, stuff, stuff that the drums are a bit more upfront, stuff that the drums are in the back, stuff that he he's singing on, you know, vocals, and <coughs> so it's hard for me to compare. And you know, I'm a huge fan of it, so it's a bit difficult for me to talk about it uh, objectively, you know. Uh, I don't know. You'll have to hear it. You know, it's 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 it's, it's a creature of its own. Our collaboration. You know, I am an artist, artist, so I don't have any opinion about uh, uh, whether I like it or whether it's good. And that's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get at, you know, where your psyche is. Where what what should what should what do you think people will get from this? What can they? What can where they? Mm. What, you know, this is what I'm trying to. Yeah, I don't understand. know. I have to listen to it again. Okay, good. I haven't listened to it in okay, a few good. months. Be yeah, because I think that sometimes when I ask these questions, some musicians get a little bit, or they get a little bit defensive, and that's not really where I'm at. I'm trying. I'm trying to. Oh, I didn't mean to sound defensive. No. Uh, I I don't take it like that. I'm just saying that I had to. I want to clarify what that means to me. Yeah, I clearly don't know what it sounds like. I don't know also what my solo album sounds like because I haven't been asking people. I haven't been like nobody except the label kind of heard it yet. I'm just saying that the only person that heard my album is David uh, Mufan besides the label. Okay, and you got something coming out on Rush Hour. Yeah, I mean, I just finished another EP for them, but uh, yeah, the plan is uh, album in 2022. But that's gonna be that's gonna be for the dancers. Yes. Antal, he's trying to push me to do more kind of dance floor stuff, and I like that. You know, I like his perspective because uh, I never saw myself as a as a dance floor kind of artist. I, I felt like yeah, occasionally I'll draw, I'll make a track that's that's you know DJs will love and uh, kind of easy to play maybe. But I never saw myself as a as that kind of producer. But I like that Antal does. Uh, see me that way and he's asking me to do a dance like a dance like a dancer an album for dancers okay you say improv improv is open for mistakes well if you believe that there's such a thing as a mistake in the first place because i don't i was getting ready to say that because i know i'm talking to you but i uh, let me finish uh and improvisational people that i've spoke to uh it's been this you're the fourth one they say also the same thing it's uh, you're trying. You're getting from one decision to the next, and to you, that's not a mistake. To someone's on the floor, they hear something. They go, "Oh, boy, that kind of mm, okay." Mm, mm. The does he did you know? Um, but anyway, um, this takes a lot of desire, commitment, concentration, skill set. Even though it's improvisation, uh, a high level of uh, 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 to 
create and maintain a high level performance. What, what, in your opinion, those I didn't list those things. I would say something else. I don't think it takes all those. Okay, um, you're talented. You said you practice. You said you have to put in the hours. When you put in the, the hours, when, when you yeah. put when you put in the hours, these kind of things develop. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. hopefully. Okay, always, okay. Yeah. Let's say hopefully. I'm always, you know, I'm not, you know, it's always a work in progress. Getting back to my point, what drives you? Nothing is working right now. Damn, I, I, this, this, our live act sucked this time. Improvisation, what you know, or do you, or do you even have bad days? I mean, come on, every single gig. Okay. Every single gig, but then there's moments of magic that we would not reach if we were not improvising, and it's worth it. Okay. And you listen back and you say, okay. Do you ever yep. listen? You ever listen back and say, "Okay, I don't." Always, it. I listen back. That was a, like a religion for us, especially Magic Mountain High. David really pushed it. Every single Magic Mountain High gig that I can remember, the night ended at six in the morning in one of our hotel rooms, listening back to the to the recording of the live show and suffering. <laughs> See, this to me is what I was trying to say. This is practice. This yeah, is yeah, studying. Yeah, yeah. This is how you get confident, Better. passion, yeah. desire. Da, 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 da. So, yeah, no doubt. Right. Okay. This is that's that's what I was trying to get. At. I guess our terms were just different. Yeah. Definitely, it's important to be self-reflecting. It's not just getting high and banging on keys and saying, "Oh, fuck them." It's improv. You know. No. It's about being your own worst critic by far have to be your worst critic you have to because people will blow smoke up your ass every single time and it's bullshit you know what worldly activities excite you such as like maybe that you're passionate about other than music yeah cooking cooking i guess and yeah. cooking top dish i try to perfect hummus i mean that's my thing i'm i'm really obsessed like mashausha masabaka like that's a different type of hummus it's like with the when the when you leave the chickpeas whole and full i'm really you know because growing up in israel surrounded by arabic and middle eastern food that's that's my thing that's what i miss and it doesn't exist you know and it calms me down it's the one thing that i do every day that doesn't involve me holding a joint in my hand it's the only thing i can do without being a nervous wreck and yeah does marijuana help you mentally or psychologically in a way um because yeah i know that a lot of musicians and a lot of you know talent people that just their life stopped this mental health problem is mm -hmm. really serious would you say or do you just smoking it because you like to be high no 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 never i it's not that i like to be high uh, that was never my thing uh, i mean i do like but it's of course self-medicate like it's total self-medication like i i suffer from a lot of like anxiety and ocd shit and ADD probably not not ADHD but you know and you know just in general like not you know serious not serious serious mental illnesses but I've been struggling with anxiety probably since childhood and the moment I discovered weed basically I could start breathing that's that was the feeling because i'm sure i'm struggling with something i just don't know what it is and i try every time i've tried to smoke i fall i have to go lay down in the bed because i can't stand up i can't even see straight yeah no i i'm like i don't feel it even you know i'm like i don't even because i've been in the last couple last week actually i've been experimenting smoking only cbd i don't know if you know much about it but cbd strain of weed which doesn't have it doesn't make you high it, the THC is what makes you high so I'm um, it has the same taste it has the same like I'm trying to figure out <coughs> at this point if I'm addicted to the THC to, or I'm just you know got used to rolling joints all day and just you know it calms me down because of the repetitiveness of the activity 
Yeah, so I'm trying to figure out exactly where, you know, where it hits. Because, you know, I would like not to be reliant on uh, spending money on uh, weed and tobacco, you know. Would, would, did, have you had professional assistant on which one of these marijuanas are good for you? No, but I have been going to a psychoanalyst four days a week for the last 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, man. I'm deep in the therapy. Old school Freudian. I'm on the I'm on the sofa. I'm on the sofa lying down every morning almost. Like yeah, most days of the week. Is it expensive to do? Not for me because the only reason I can do it is because I found an amazing shrink who is basically charging me less than 10 euros a session. Okay, great, fantastic. I'm happy for I'm happy to hear that. No, man, I was so lucky with this. It's because, listen, this this therapy, psychoanalysis, old school uh, psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis is not fashionable right now. So for him, he wants a good patient and he's willing to do it basically for free just so he can practice, he can keep up with his skills, you know, because he believes in it. Okay. It's an art, you know, it's like an art form for him to be a psychoanalyst. It's his art. He's also very interested in my psychological uh, situation, I guess, you know? So I guess it's worth it for him. But yeah, without that, I definitely wouldn't be able to. What lifts your spirit to keep you motivated every day to, are you a positive person? No, I'm a, I mean, no, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guilt driven, uh, stress driven. No, I'm obsessive. I turn on the studio every day, not for uplifting reasons, just because it's my religion. You know, basically it's my religion. This is what I do. This is what I do. I don't question it. This is what I do. And I have to keep doing it. I can't look left or right or I'll fall. I'm a walking on a tightrope here and, you know, I have to believe or I'm, cause you know, what are the chances to make a living from music? Zero, like close to zero. And I have to be blind to that a bit. And well, I tell you one thing, I like the idea of you teaching improvisation. Yeah. I've been enjoying it too. Like it gives me something. Yeah, I really like, that's just, just something that's part of you and it's authentic. And it seems like this is what what people will can gravitate to and and take serious and personal because you are someone that's actually going actually going through it and getting through it and i'm gonna give them a hard time you know i'm not gonna be easy on them not uh, the other side i, of I it, have very strong opinions yeah that, that other side of that though is that you have it seems like as a to be a good teacher is also someone that's getting good results from their students and sometimes you might have to be able you might have to be able to know when to be aggressive when not to yeah, be of course, you know of not course, of course. When, I, when i mean aggressive i mean i i try to push them in 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 the areas where they're a little uncomfortable Right, right. I mean, because that's, that's part, right, of, your, that's part of your that's part of your improvisational uh, yeah, teachings, yeah. Uh, teachings. Um, and some people got to catch up to you, though. You probably like miles ahead of them, fifteen miles ahead of them, and um, it's going to take them like a super long time to catch up with you. But I'm not trying to. I'm just understanding, and I'm I'm interested in even going there and I want to see how you work. Yeah. Um, a few more things that we have to get going. Um, can you name your favorite live act experience? that you're really, really proud of? Wow. Uh, uh, of my own. Uh, of, uh, of whatever, you're just your whole... Yeah, I mean, I always traditionally, with Magic Mountain High, for example, there was one gig that we uh, think back to. It was an outdoor gig in Toulouse, in France, that we have fond memories of because it was in the park in the city center and it was a free event that i guess the city paid for so it wasn't like full of hipsters it was just people from all walks of life children everything and it started out in the afternoon so we started out you know with playing people were sitting down you know they were chilling on the grass and we were playing ambient and then we slowly brought it up and at the end everybody was dancing like you know and that i don't know for some reason that gig stayed with all of us in magic mountain high as a high point now 
Juju and Jordash, I would say we always love playing Room 2 at free rotation. That sweat box. Yay! I mean, and my solo stuff, I mean, I had a really good gig in Manchester a couple, a few years, a couple years ago for Rush Hour at the Warehouse Project. And yeah, those are some gigs I remember as kind of standouts. And also, actually, no, like ambient gigs also some stood out, but also free rotation in the year okay, I really yeah. enjoy. <laughs> Nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, free rotation itself is always such a great vibe for freedom, you know. Thank you so much for spending some time with me to discuss, you know, life, music, tech. Um, I would really would like to dive deeper into um, your gear and what um, mm-hmm. some techniques. So I would love to do another uh, interview with you so we can talk about these machines and uh, sure. and 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 why they mean so much to you in your in your process. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your mix when you get a chance to record it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will, uh, 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 yeah, and thank you so much for the promos. Um, uh, I'm li- really no looking problem. forward to the to the Terrence Dixon uh, combination here. And uh, I'm sure that working with all of these other guys, they've, uh, hopefully they've been a positive influence on your solo. 100%. Well, have a great day and thanks thanks, thanks again. Man. And I really totally appreciate your time. Well, thanks for asking me to do this. My pleasure, man. Super. Okay, talk to you soon, dude.